You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. If you're a guest with us this morning, maybe this is your first time visiting with us, we do not take that for granted. We're so thankful that you chose out of all the places to be this morning, to be with us, and we don't take that for granted. We'd love to meet you. Um, you can fill out a Connect card and put it in the, the giving boxes or take it to the start, blue Start Here sign across the atrium. We have a gift for you this morning. Or you can text the, the number that we've already seen on the screen. It's a way to make your presence known. We're not going to hunt you down. We don't want your, uh, your, your, all your data and how, where you shop and all that. We just want to know how to pray for you and how to encourage you in this season of life you're in. I also want to remind you that this week our students are going to camp. And so we're really excited about that. Yeah, you can clap for that. Woo-woo. As a, as a guy that served students for several years, this is, a, this is a pivotal time, a pivotal time in our year where students are going to camp and they're going to hear the gospel uniquely. They're going to be around people in a unique setting to be able to open up their lives and their hearts to the gospel. So just be praying for them this week as we send them off. Um, pray in the vein of you knowing what a 16-year-old you needed at, your, at 16 years old and, and, or 14 years old. And just pray that God would do a work in our students' lives. Pray that God would save some students. The students would go to Crossing Cedarmore just 50 minutes down the road and come back made alive by the gospel or a student that's going through a lot of hurt and has told nobody. Well, tell somebody this week because of the unique, safe, healthy environment that they're in. So just praying for them this week as they go off to camp. Also remind you of our best July ever events this summer. It's a way we're going to gather our kiddos on the lawn this summer on Saturday mornings. And we're just going to learn the Bible together, sing. They're going to experience fun skits um, and a way to learn about their creator God and how that God wants to be friends with them. So if you haven't signed up, you can go to what's going on and sign up today and there's be somebody at the, the start here sign to answer any questions for you today. And just a reminder that all of this happens, all this mystery happens because of your sacrificial generosity. We give because we can reach people. God can mobilize our resources to help kids at best July ever hear the gospel and send kids to camp to hear the gospel in a unique way. So just to encourage you that your, your money is being put to work by God and being multiplied in people's lives. So if you have a physical gift, there's giving boxes in the back. The best way to give is to download the Sojourn app and you can give right on the app. It's really easy. It's really awesome to use. So if that's you, you can, it can invite you in to sacrificial generosity for kingdom and God's glory. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That's where we've been, or we're in actually chapter 4 today. We've been in Ecclesiastes for several weeks. We're learning what the preacher, the teacher, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is showing us is basically that this world is not that great. <laughs> Life is not that great. And last week we, we picked up where um, Ecclesiastes, or the, the preacher Solomon, is trying to show us the harshness of this world the oppression we see, and how do we navigate it. We pick up today 
in verse 4. So if you have a Bible, I'd love if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It'll be on the screen. I also encourage you to grab a Bible in the seat in front, underneath the seat in front of you to follow along with us this morning. We'll be picking up in verse 4 and uh, through verse 12. Hear the Word of the Lord. I saw that all the labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful of with rest than two handfuls with effort and pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw the futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion without even a son or a brother, though there is no end to his struggles. His eyes are still not content with his riches. Who am I struggling for, he asked, and depriving myself of good things? This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion, can, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But the one, how can a person keep warm, one person keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you speak this morning. We ask, first of all, that you, you bless our students this week as they're at camp. Lord, you do an incredible work in their stories this weekend, that they remember this week at Crossing Cedarmore as one of the most pivotal weeks in their spiritual journey. But as, we hear, as we're here today, Lord, we, we need you to speak to us to help us see what we can't see. It's going to require you to show us. We ask this for the glory and in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. You guys can be seated. So one of the outcomes of a ethically progressing or evolving or whatever you want to call it world and, and culture is this um, atheistic or naturalistic view of humanity and all creation. So one of the outcomes of that is that many want to um, shorten the gap between humanity and animals. This is through a worldview of evolution or naturalistic evolution or just a, a view that decreases the value of humans but increases the value of animals and plants. So they, they try to make an argument, many, that we're not very different than animals, well, actually, Solomon makes that argument last week, but he doesn't have a full revelation of what we know now. But one of the things that's interesting is that some of the most atheistic or naturalistic people will make observations about humanity that, that's unscientific. Here's what they say. That animals in no history or no time in the world have ever created particular things. For example, they've never created beauty. Animals in the history of their expanse, in the history of the world, have never created beauty as an end in and of itself. 
They've done things for beauty, but most of those things are just for themselves, for survival, for, for help, for, for more. Well, they also have never created and used tools. Like, if you're just honest, there's some animals that are way, way bigger and more powerful than human beings, right? Like, you go to the zoo, and you're looking at these animals. It's Caitlin and Will have just been at the zoo constantly this week, and I try to get there with them. But you see, you walked up an elephant or a giraffe or gorillas. You can imagine that these animals, if they made tools and used them, yeah, we would be the lesser beings, 100%. But in the history of animals, they've never made and used tools. One of the things they observed about humanity and difference in animals, and animals are never creating, craving more for the sake of more. They never struggle with discontentment, never struggle with just having what they have. They just want to survive. They just want to have something to eat. They want some water to drink. They want a safe habitat to live in. But uh, humans are constantly striving for more. They move to places for more. They create things for more. But we, we don't create things and get things and buy things for the sake of survival. Like that's cavemen survived, <laughs> right? We get things, we build things, we buy things for more. And I think that's what the author today realizes. He's showing us this desire for more. And here's the question I think he wants to ask us and what I want you to ask this morning. Isn't there something more rewarding than more? Isn't there something more rewarding than more? What I want to do this morning is kind of basically walk through this text and as like a, a textual tour guide of Solomon's thoughts and land on a ways to see the better life. So let's pick up in verse 4 where Solomon starts talking about this. Look what he says in verse 4. I saw that all the labor and the skillful work is due to a per, one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in pursuit of the wind. So he looks at the labor of, of humanity, of people, and he says, most of this, if not all of this, is due to people's jealousy over another. And I'm not saying all of us work for the sake of having better stuff than our neighbor, but we do strive to have more stuff and more things because our neighbors have it or our friends have it. If you knew nothing of what your neighbors or your siblings or anybody else had, you would save a lot of money because you wouldn't know what was out there to have more. You're constantly be, being shown by your neighbor pulling in their driveway or going in your backyard and seeing what you do not have. And you don't have to go looking for it today. Today, you can open up your phone and be, and be shown all that your neighbor has, all that you do not have, and how much you can pay to get it. Every day in our face is this constant desire, temptation for more. 
And what Solomon's saying here is that it's rooted in this unhealthy jealousy that we want more because we want what other people have because they look happy and I want to be happy. And Solomon's saying there's something better than that. Look what he, pick up in verse five, look what he says. He gives us a little parable or this little poem. The fool folds his arms and consumes his flesh. Better is one handful of rest than two handfuls of effort in a pursuit of the wind. What he's saying here is he's observing the futility of the jealousy of the work pace of people's lives. He says, the fool folds his arms and consumes his flesh. This imagery is selfish, consumeristic, but it's also this picture of consuming the flesh that it's deteriorating your body. The fool works his whole life to simply be miserable. He says there's a better way. Better, listen to that language, better is one handful of rest than two handfuls of work. He's saying it's better, it's better to rest with half your life than to work and be miserable for the rest of your life. And that's contradictory to what we know in life, right? We don't, we're not being taught that rest is better than work. Now, it's not saying that work is bad, but nobody's bragging on their social media pages about resting, and if they are, they're bragging about where they went on vacation. There's no shame in that. I'm not shaming anybody here. I'm going on vacation soon. Nobody's bragging about shutting their computer off at 5 p.m. every day and going home and spending time with their family. Now, what's celebrated, what documentaries are about, is people working really, really hard and making something of themselves. That's what's celebrated. And we're, we're taught all of our lives to get more, do more, become better. You will get more if you work more. And you have learned it's miserable. It's hard. Sci science has proven that one of the leading factors of you living a longer life is sleep. You want to live longer? Rest more. And I think that's what Solomon's saying. It's better. It's better to have one handful of rest than two handfuls of effort. He has some more observations about the futility of this. Look at verse seven. Again, I saw the futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without a son or a brother, though there was no, one, no end to all of his struggles. His eyes are still not content with his riches, who am I struggling for, he asked, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. So he says, not only is it miserable to work your life, but it's miserable to work your whole life and have no reward for it. And you can sense the pity in Solomon's voice. He has this pity on this person that says, what am I working all this for? I have no friends. I have no family. I don't have anybody to enjoy this with? Why am I depriving myself for this, from this, when I am working so hard? Why am I doing this? Why am I striving for more and I'm not happy? 
There's got to be something better than striving for more. And our system teaches us to live this way. Our system teaches us that more is better. The next is better. The, the having that will be better. In elementary school, you can't wait to be in middle school. In middle school, you can't wait to be in high school. In high school, you can't wait to be in college. College students can't wait to get jobs. Young adults can't wait to get married. Married couples can't wait to have kids. Parents can't wait to get their kids out of the house. Working adults can't wait to retire, and retired people can't wait to die. And that's life. It's interesting that we, have, we live our whole life of work can't, not waiting. It's so anticipating to retire and to soon die. And that's the culture, that's the world that has trained us. Retirement's good. The other day at S2, I showed, I talked to students about what it means to invest in your future to be able to retire. But, but retirement will not fulfill you. Students, let me, let me just talk to you real quick. That next grade will not fulfill you. That relationship will not fulfill you. Getting into that college will not fulfill you. Getting that job will not fulfill you. Having that marriage will not fulfill you. These things are not bad. They are evil if you try to find your soul's rest in them. The grass is not greener. It's just differently hard. We must fight. We must resist the temptation of finding our fulfillment in more. And avoid the busy life, the frantic life, the hectic life, the stressed life, and end up being happy, seeking, unhappy, seeking to be happy. And we see this in the life of Jesus, don't we? We see a man on a mission. He's in the most pivotal mission in the history of the world. He enters the scene calm, cool, and collected. Plotting away, healing people this day, eating with his friends the next. It's, it's funny how we have this, some are tempted, some of us are have, the, have this vision of Jesus as this busy, radical human being doing everything. But that's not the life the gospels show us. He heals, hangs out with his friends, and he rests. He does miracles and ministry, hangs out with his friends, and rests. That's the rhythms of Jesus' life. And could you imagine in Matthew 8 when Jesus is healing all the lepers and people getting healed? And could you imagine being the second person in line to get healing that day when Jesus decided, I need to go rest? Could you imagine being the person that showed up a day late when Jesus was in town? We're tempted to think Jesus fixed every problem, solved every, had, had every solution, healed everybody. But he was limited. He embraced his humanity. He went and spent time with his father in heaven by himself. He hung out around a fire eating fish and chips with his friends. And you might think, Jesus, like, you got three years, man. You got to get busy. There's people that need healing. There's people that need saving. There's disciples that need to be made. You can spend time with your father forever in heaven. 
And what we see in Jesus is his calm, never hectic life. Knowing he's going to die one day and he's going to take that as it comes. You see Jesus constantly, it's not the time, I'll wait on my father. It's not the time, I'll wait on my father. That his will, my father's will is what's constantly needed in my life. I need to wait on God to give me the life I'm wanting to have. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus, him taking one step at a time, one foot after another, living the life he has. And not to mention that we only get three years of Jesus' life. Remember, Jesus lived 30 years before doing any ministry. What was he doing? His divinity didn't start at 30. He was fully God, fully man in the manger. What was he doing? He was working, hanging out with his mom, having friends, spending time with his cousins. And some people may, that, may call that lazy. But Jesus knew that more knew wasn't better. And that's the life we, he's called us to live. It's the life that we're invited to. But he does show us what is better than more. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one because, listen to that word, two are what? Better than one. Because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep each other warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. One cord of three strands is not easily broken. He, he's clearly transitioning to verse 8, which says, this is a miserable task, to moving to two or better than one. So working for more, living a life for more misery, what's better? Living a life with others. That's the better life. That's the better way to live. And he gives the benefits of living life with others. He says that when someone falls down, someone can be there to pick them up. And you know that experience. One of the darkest seasons of your life will be the moment that when you fall down, either physically or spiritually, that you have no idea who to call. Who would come to my door? Who would have a meal with me? That's the darkest time of loneliness. And he says, pity that person. It's miserable. It's not the good life. Then he says it's, you're able to keep warm. Now, this is probably the most illogical one for us today because obviously Solomon didn't have an HVAC unit, didn't have blankets. You can keep warm without lying beside one another. But I think what he's, what he's saying here is we need people for physical health. We need other people for physical health. Then he says that other people help us keep safe. And you felt this, right? The companionship of another person helps you feel physically safe. I know when I was a child and around my dad, I knew I was safe. When I'm with friends and my wife and my kids, we are safe because we're together. But the lone wolf, the lone person 
can be physically endangered in a, in a world full of violence. Friendships are better. I can't not imagine the scene from one of the greatest movies, if not the greatest movie of all time, Forrest Gump. Forrest and Bubba are in Vietnam. They're fighting the war and they're going um, through the, the different scenes and they, they face um, stinging rain and fat rain and sideways rain and upside down rain. And they, they finally get to the woods. They sit down. They, they want to rest. And listen to what Bubba says to Forrest. Hey, Forrest, I'm going to lean up against you and you lean right back against me. This way we don't have to sleep with our heads in the mud. You know why we're a good partnership, Forrest? Because we be watching out for one another, like brothers and stuff. One of the most beautiful images of friendship you'll find is this image of friendship that we have chaos and violence, a war going on around us, and we simply want to rest, but to rest we need people to lean on. Friendship is helping each other keep our heads out of the mud. Helping our, 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 each other lean against one another, dependent on one another in such a way that this person is going to help me survive. That's friendship. And some of us, if we're honest, we don't constantly feel the need for friendship. We think we have enough friends. We think we, we have plenty of people in our life and we like giving to people. We don't like receiving help from people. Can I just encourage you if that's you this morning? The first step to flourishing friendships, the first step to healthy relationships is realizing your neediness. I love what our Connections Director Ashley Stevenson says all the time in our membership process, and even it's on the wall out there, the Blong wall, it says to be a member at our church, to flourish at our church is to be needy and needed. You will not be in flourishing friendships unless you realize your neediness and allow people to help you follow Jesus and live this life. But most of you, if you're willing to be honest, are not in that side of the spectrum. You experience loneliness on a regular basis. And if you're willing to be honest, you walk through our doors at this church on a regular basis, loving this church, but feeling there's nobody in this building that knows who you are. That's a real experience. I'm not diminishing that at all. That's a real experience. That's a valid experience. I'm sorry. There's all of us in this room have been there and experienced that. One of the darkest moments in your life will be the times where you find, you go somewhere to find spiritual nourishment or spiritual friends only to have the door shut in your face. Can I encourage you that Jesus fills with you this morning? Living his life with his best friends for several years and he prays in the garden, his best friends fall asleep on him. And then he's arrested and his best friends abandon him. And he goes to a cross, gets nailed to a tree by his family bloodline and his friends are nowhere to be seen. Jesus knows intimately what you're going through. 
So before I try to give you any solutions or pathways and how to navigate loneliness and friendships, I just want to let, give you the permission to express yourself and sit in the pain of loneliness. Because we're tempted to think we're alone. Uh, nobody, nobody in our church is lonely. Nobody in our neighborhood is lonely. I'm only lonely. No, friend, loneliness is a constant epidemic in our culture. I just want to invite you in to not brush that off, not feel like you, you are, are an alien in that. I also want to encourage you in a few ways to foster relationships within this church and in the world. Because I encourage you first to be the friend to others that you want others to be to you. Be the friend to others that you want others to be to you. Friendship is not a consumeristic activity. Friendship is not a one-way street. Friendship is leaning upon one another, being needy and needed. Be the friend to others that you want others to be to you. I've had conversations not with anybody in this room, but people that experiencing loneliness and they, they feel like nobody's good friends with them, feel like nobody wants to serve them, yet their posture is arms crossed, get away from me. You will not find healthy friendships until you become the healthy friend. Be the friend you want others to be to you. I also want to encourage you, this seems really simplistic, but make a list of people. Write a list of people down you want to spend time with. And text them, call them, email them, hang out. One of our members at our church resonated with that experience of loneliness in our church. They loved our church. They were here. They were present in our church. But if they were honest, they walked in our doors and didn't know if anybody wanted to be their friend or was their friend. So instead of pressing the eject button on our church, they wrote a list. They got out their notes app in their phone, and they started writing people's names down they want to spend time with. And you know what happened? People said yes. <laughs> people said yes, I'd love to hang out. Because one, one of the things we imagine is that everybody has enough friends and everybody's too busy. And if every one of us believe that, then all of us won't hang out together. Because we're all too busy, figuratively, in our head, where everybody's too busy for us. I was in a room just weeks ago where a couple wanted to hang out with another couple. And they've been wanting to hang out with them, but they thought they had enough friends or were too busy. And this couple wanted to hang out with them. They thought they were too busy and they had enough friends. And we're constantly thinking and projecting everybody's not lonely, everybody's busy, everybody has enough friends. Can I just encourage you? The loneliness epidemic is at an all-time high in our culture and everybody needs more friends. You do. We do. Make a list. Write, it, write the names down. Call them. Yes, it's going to feel like um, you're a middle schooler again asking a young woman or young man on a date. It is. It's, it's, it's like dating all over again, and you might get rejected, and that's okay. Just press through and ask the next person on the list. Relationships take work. They're hard. They're awkward. There's social anxiety involved in it. But the first step on you finding friends, you finding relationships is making the ask. Make a list, ask them to hang out. And what you'll find, you do that over and over again. You'll walk through these doors and you'll have more hellos, more hugs, more smiles, 
more faces that know your story and know your pain than ever before in your life. Make a list. Ask people to hang out. And thirdly, get in a community group. Community groups at our church exist for you to participate in healthy friendships. If community groups had a little tagline, they would be this. They are organized friendship. Somebody emailing you, texting you, getting you involved into a regular rhythm of people spending time together. The goal of community groups is to create an environment where lonely people find relationships. That is the goal. We want people to find enduring friendships and enduring relationships for the rest of their lives. Get in a community group. Maybe you're, you want to host a community group. We'd love to talk about that. Maybe you want to lead a community group. You think, I kind of like leading. When you, if you're good at friendship and you love Jesus, we can train you and you're ready for to lead a community group. That is what leadership and community groups are. Helping people be friends. There's lonely people that walk through our doors every day. And this space isn't sufficient for that. This space isn't sufficient for us to practice the one another's, to pray for one another uniquely, to help one another uniquely. So we need to gather in smaller environments. You can call it a community group. If you want to get lunch every other week with a friend and not call it a community group, that is relationships. But if you want to get involved in a community group at our church, just take a connect card right now and fill it out. Say, I want to get in a community group. I want to lead a community group. I want to host a community group. And you can be a part of fostering healthy environments for enduring and healthy friendships in our church. Get in a community group. The goal is not group. The goal is not having dinners with a bunch of people. The goal is not having the best friends and the most friends. The goal is being healthily in relationships. We all know this. We've all experienced this. Loneliness is darkness. It takes a long time for us to realize that, though. Because in life, we're juggling so many things. We have all these things in our life that we're trying to manage. We're managing our kids' homework. We're managing our jobs. We're managing other people's expectations of us. We're managing our work. We're managing our hobbies. And we have all of this life going on. And all of a sudden, we have this work thing. We have this job. We have our hobbies. We have our kid. We have our, all these things. And we're, we're just trying to hold them all. And we, we live this life of just holding it all together. And you know what happens? You know what you experience? You drop something. And a part of living this life is realizing what you can drop and what you can't. Listen, you can drop your job and you can get a new job. You can drop a hobby, you can get a new hobby. You can, you can have this thing you want to do and it's taking up a lot of your time and you drop it and guess what? You can pick it right back up. There's things you can drop. There's also things you can't. Like your family. Your kids. And your formation. Your time with others. Your friendships. You can drop these a few times. 
There's going to be cracks. There's going to be fracturing. You drop them enough, and you won't recognize them. Yes, God can do a work to get it back, but that doesn't remove all the scars. I just want to invite you. I think Solomon's inviting you. I think God's inviting you to hold precious what is precious and hold light what is meaningless, what is vanity. That's the invitation that God has for you this morning. There is something better than more. It's people. Let's pray. I just want to invite you to evaluate your life right now. Not your whole life, just some of it. Think about those different objects. And what are you holding too tightly that you shouldn't hold too tight? What are you holding loosely that you should hold secure? Father, we just ask that you examine our hearts this morning. Let us be honest with ourselves. Let us be willing to admit that we've worked too much this week or this month. That we've been we've been holding our work too secure. We've been holding these hobbies too secure. We've been holding these things, these more too secure. And there's a better way to live. Just give us the courage to admit that to ourselves, But also give us the faith to make a friend. Not so that we can just find the silver bullet of relationships, but so that we can flourish and live the good life. We ask this by faith, knowing that you're better than us, that your life is better than our lives, that your kingdom is more worthy than our kingdom. We ask this for the glory and fame of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we come to the table of communion, it's kind of remarkable when you think about the last thing that Jesus did. He had a meal with his best friends. And of all the things he could have been doing, all the, 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 the urgent things he had to do, he sat at the table. He broke a piece of bread and shared it with his best friend saying, this is my body that was broken so that you can be friends with me and my father and each other. So as you take this bread, as you take communion, remember God's broken body for your flourishing, for your good life, for you to have friends. And you take the cup and you drink this cup in remembrance of the blood that Jesus shed for all the failures, for all the times you've dropped stuff you shouldn't have dropped, all the things you've put in the wrong place of priorities. And Jesus says, this is for you. So you come to this table clean, pure, fully redeemed. If you're not a Christian here, I would invite you not to take this meal but receive Jesus. I'd love to talk to you about what that means. 
Stop living to make something of yourself. Stop living for your job. Give your life to Jesus. He'll take you right now. Just ask him to enter your life and say, I'm done with ruling my own life. I'm done with holding things too securely. I'm done with making much of me and my stuff. I want to make much of you. And you can do that right where you're sitting and become a follower of Jesus. And we can take communion next week. Let's stand as church and take communion as a family. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.